Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik with Aaron Cameron. We want to thank our sponsor, Yardy, on this episode. We are in a, a multi-day marathon of podcasting. We're currently sitting at the, the Real REIT Conference. We've had a, you know, an interesting day here panel-wise, but we've also been recording podcasts nonstop. We're lucky enough to have Kevin Gorey, CEO and President of Granite REIT with us. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So Kevin is moments away from uh, hitting the stage. I guess this would be closing roundtable, I imagine, coming I, up. Yes, I believe yeah. so. So that is, that is the primo spot at the conference if you're going to uh, sit in a panel. It's when everyone is tired. Looking forward to that first round of drinks. Throw me up there. (laughs) So this will be an exercise in just kind of stretching your legs out mentally, you know, on on real estate before getting up there for the for the big show. So let's go back in time though. We're gonna start with you know how you got into real estate and you know how that path led to sitting here on a podcast at the uh, Real Reconference. I'm like a lot of people that kind of didn't grow up thinking about real estate, kind of fell into it, but it's been a very rewarding sector to be sure. I started off as a civil engineer. I graduated from the University of Toronto, and I was actually a practicing structural engineer. And at a time in the early 90s where there really wasn't a lot of construction major projects going on, the one thing that was active at the time was telecom. So think about building out telecommunication towers, cell phone towers, on buildings and on grade, you know, across Canada and throughout North America. So I was active on that side. And frankly, met a major real estate company through a lawsuit where they were suing our client, which at the time happened to be Cantel, which is now, which is now Rogers. That's a nice way to meet. It was, it was. And, and short answer is we won. That was the, the short end of the story was we won the lawsuit. But the real estate company approached me after and said, we want you to come on our side and help with CapEx and development. And I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea how an engineer with this skill set would fit into real estate. And then I realized how much is invested in real estate, not only on the development side, but as you know, on the CapEx side as well. So I think that was the mid 2000s or sorry, mid 90s when I did that. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting ride. So that would have been, I guess, just post real estate crash. The mid 90s, it was back to, yep. to good times in real estate. So you weren't jumping into... Uh, a little bit more of a spicy market. Yeah. And we, at the time, this was a company that focused more on multifamily and hotels. And so it was a, it was a fantastic run. We represented a lot of institutional capital in Canada, but it was still sort of a nascent industry. And you guys know multifamily well. And it was a great training ground for someone new to real estate because it's a gross lease environment. So you realize the importance of not only growing revenue, but, but managing expenses. So it was a great sort of learning experience for me. We did a lot of interesting things, went through a lot of ups and downs. And then I transitioned to Oxford Properties, more on the institutional side, and did multifamily there. But that was my first introduction to the industrial real estate asset class. So, we're for, so how long were you at Oxford for? I think about six years. Enough to do a fair bit of damage. And you, were, and you were focused on the apartments, but you also got some opportunity to work on the industrial portfolio. Correct. We went through a, a major transformation when Michael Latimer stepped off, Blake Hutchison came in from CBRE, and we decided to sort of take the global asset management group, which I was a part of, and move from 
specialization and asset class to more of a geographic focus. And so I did industrial multifamily in North America. And then just decided to go somewhere else? What was the last jump? So before Granite, was a company called Pure Industrial Real Estate Trust, which was the end of the game as it was acquired by Blackstone in 2018. But I joined Pure Industrial REIT in 2012. I think it was roughly a 250 million market cap at the time. And I became president there. And the opportunity really was to take what I felt to be the right strategy and execute on that strategy and, and have full say in, in what happens at the company. So definitely a bit of a risk. It took a few you know, kitchen table discussions with my wife uh, about what was the best move for our family, but ultimately decided to take on that role. And, you know, we grew the company in the end in 2018, it was sold to Blackstone for 4 billion. So it was quite a transformation for the company and growth. Very, very exciting time. I'm still sorry to see that. Uh, well, at, that the, at the peak there, I mean, pre the Blackstone acquisition, you guys were extremely active in the marketplace. Correct. We had a very strong conviction in the GTA market. We had a very strong conviction in Vancouver and some markets in the US. So we were very active. And it is a compliment, ultimately that BlackRock came in and identified Blackstone, sorry, identified you guys as, as something they wanted. But however, still feels like it kind of left a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah, in a way, it's, it's like unfinished business. We really liked what we were doing and we were not looking to, to sell the company whatsoever. We were very happy we're doing. We felt we could add a lot more value and continue to execute the strategy. But when you have a buyer, a qualified buyer like Blackstone and they come in and make a serious offer, at the end of the day, you have to do what's right for unit holders. You have to do what's right for the organization. Well, it was a 35% lift, I think, wasn't it? It was something like yeah, that. I, yeah, I was it was a high Very minor unit holder, but I did uh, see, <laughs> see, realize some of that. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, I was a big unit holder yeah, as well. You probably did a little better than I did in that one, yeah. <laughs> so that was 2018. How what did the transition to Granite take place? Well, so we announced the acquisition in January of 2018 to Blackstone. And at the time, Granite was looking for a new CEO. Michael Forsyth, who was the CEO, was stepping down and retiring. And I think they were out there looking at candidates and they approached me. And I, I actually, at the time, you know, you don't have these types of events, these types of opportunities in your life to just take a step back and, and just, you know, evaluate what's the best thing for you, what's the best thing for your, your career, your family. This is one of those. But at the end of the day, the opportunity at Granite the balance sheet that they had, great board. And, you know, they wanted someone to come in and basically establish a strategy and execute on that strategy. And I had, you know, the, the freedom and the flexibility to chart the course, the next level for the company. So it was a very exciting opportunity. And I joined, I think, in August of 2018. So just for our listeners to understand, maybe just do a quick background of Granite. How long has it been around? What's their, right. their, their sort of history to, to today. Right. So Granite is a, a bit different. Granite used to be part of Magna. So if you remember the proxy days with Frank Stronach and when Magna split out their real estate holdings and they split out their gaming holdings, Granite was created. At the time, it was called MID, Magna International Development. And then Granite became a REIT in 2012. I should know the exact date, but I think it was 2012. Granite officially became a REIT. And at the time, 97% of the portfolio, I think it was 16, 17 million feet. 
was 97% Magna. So it was effectively all Magna facilities. And I joined in 2018 with a plan to expand into logistics, expand into e-commerce, sort of transform the company, sell, you know, non-core assets over time. So we're down now to roughly 20% of our GLA is Magna from 97%. So there's been quite a transformation. That's quick in in four, four and a half years. Exactly. And it takes time. And now we are truly a a logistics e-commerce company. We still have Magna. They're our biggest tenant and a very important tenant to us. But as we continue to grow, really our focus is on e-commerce and uh, logistics. And geographics? We are in three major areas. We're in Canada, in the GTA. We're in the U.S., probably 10 markets in the U.S. We have uh, about 35 million feet. And we have about 15 million feet in Europe. And that's concentrated in Germany, Netherlands, and Austria. Sorry, let me do the math. You had 17, 16, 17 million of Magna, which is about the majority of your portfolio. What's the total square footage today? About 57 million feet as at the end of Q2. And we still have roughly... 4 million feet of development to be stabilized over the next three to four months. So going to 60 million. So that's 40 million additional since you started with a bunch of disposition at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Sounds there like was, a lot to me. <laughs> well, there was some acquisition before I joined. Okay. I, can't take, I yeah. can't take credit for it all. But we've also disposed since I've been there as well. So the 40 million mark might not be that far off. That's, that's, that's a lot. That's incredible. Yeah. We don't have fact checkers for the show. No, don't worry so about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I make up 90% of the stuff comes out of my mouth is all just made up. Don't worry. Yeah. This isn't being recorded. Is yeah, it? no one listens to this. Yeah, just the three of us having a conversation with, for, with mics in our mouths for some reason. What was driving the disposition? Well, you know, at the end of the day, to back up, you know, I think a lot of real estate companies, we were no exception, went through a lot of uncertainty in 2020 with COVID, but our portfolio performed extremely well. We collected 100% of our rent. I'm not sure of any other real estate company that did that. So we're very fortunate for the, the quality and makeup of our portfolio and the tenants. But Magna also was a strength, a real, a real stability for us. But like I said, at the end of the day, we're really focused on being you know, the best owner, developer, manager of logistics real estate that we can be. And although there's no urgency to selling you know, assets with Magna or non-core assets, at the end of the day, those aren't the type of assets that we're targeting to acquire or, or develop. So over time, it only makes sense that we'll continue to sell, you know, non-core assets on a selective basis and focus on growing in, in, our, in our target markets. I want to get into the fundamentals of the industrial market and the implications of COVID and what's going forward. Because I think that's, that's really interesting. And we'll, we'll talk about, you know, what that means from a REIT perspective as well. Because of course, you're, you know, being publicly traded. But first, let's just Focus a little bit on Europe, North America, and Canada. The decision to be in all those markets, now is that since you've joined or did that already exist when you came in? Well, yes and no. So we were in all those jurisdictions before I joined in terms of, in terms of real estate. Um, we had legacy assets in Europe, but we weren't acquiring or, or growing very much in Europe. And when I came in in 2018, it was an important thing to evaluate. Should we continue to have holdings in Europe? What should we do? And at the time, we made the decision that being in Europe was going to be an overall benefit to us because the real estate fundamentals were strong and we believe would continue to improve because e-commerce is in a, an earlier you know, phase of evolution than it is in North America, than it is in the UK, than it is. So there was the fundamental sort of potential. 
and also the ability to finance, as you guys probably are well aware, at very low rates. Very, very low rates. Very, yeah. very low rates. So 200 to 250 basis points below prevailing rates in, in Canada and the, at the US. Today or at the time? At the time. Yeah. So today it's, it's, different. it's still yeah. you know, 170, 180 basis points different, but, but not what it was. So, I remember speaking with a group that have, was largely based out of Germany. And this was during 2020. So the lowest interest rates that we've you know, ever experienced. And I quoted them the prevailing rates at the time. And there's, oh, <laughs> not impressed <laughs> at all. Meanwhile, every borrower in Canada just can't believe how cheap money's gotten. So that was, that was a real eye-opener to how yeah. incredibly cheap borrowing is there. We invested in the platform in Europe. We made a change at the leadership. We opened an office in Amsterdam. And in the U.S., we were acquiring sort of on a, an ad hoc basis. And so we opened an office in Dallas. We hired someone, a 20-year veteran, you know, a prologist veteran to really lead our program in the U.S. So it wasn't as much, we weren't in those markets, but we definitely doubled down in those markets and made a concerted, you know, decision to continue to invest and, and grow in those markets. So with your pivot towards logistics and e-commerce, good timing with the COVID hyper amplifying those two particular you know, sub-asset classes within the industrial space. Maybe let's just talk about that today. So we, we just had Mike Bonneveld from Skyline and uh, Industrial Read on. So I've mm-hmm. got some numbers in my head I can regurgitate. The Canadian industrial vacancy rates of 1.1%. In many markets, significant rental increases. In the GTA, it's sort of $18 or thereabouts. Even in Vancouver, it's around there. Even Alberta, we're seeing you know, some significant rental increases. So there's a, there's a supply-demand disconnect right yep. now. Yep. And we did talk about supply coming online, but it's, you know, it's at least four or five years away before we start to get back to you know, supply and demand being, being more equal. Is that fair? Like I'm just kind of, I'm jumping the conversation forward so we can get to some more interesting conversations. Well, that, is that kind of aligned with what you're understanding? Absolutely, 100%. We've seen sort of double-digit year-over-year rental growth across all of our markets, whether it's in Europe, the U.S., or Canada, but it is most, it continues to be most noticeable and evidence in the GTA. And one stat that I'll throw at you is, you know, we have a large development in Brantford going on and that, you know, part of moving to Brantford instead of the 905 area code is just availability, cost of land, and just the way that, you know, tenants that need larger space need to look to the Miltons, the Guelphs of the world and in Brantford. And so we saw that as an opportunity. You look, this was early 2021. We were underwriting $7.58 to rents, and now we're achieving rents north of $11 in a period of 18 months. We definitely, I would agree with everything that Mike said, and that's what we're seeing. And But we're also seeing it to a lesser degree, but still very strong rent growth in our U.S. markets and in Europe as well. If you could just snap your fingers and reweight your portfolio, would it be Canada-based right now? Do you see the, the strongest case here? I don't know. I think for us, you're really limited in terms of opportunity. So yeah, if I could snap my fingers and have 60 million feet in the GTA, I probably wouldn't say, I probably wouldn't say no to that to be sure. But you also have to go where, where the opportunities are. And the other thing that we like, particularly about the U.S. is, you know, most of that five and a half million feet I refer to is in the U.S. And that's where we've been really able to drive a lot of value. Like we've been able to achieve profits north of 60% on our development sites there. And I don't know if you would get that in the GTA. And I'll give you another example. Let's throw stats around. When you're a REIT, you can understand the constraints that you have around development. You know, carrying land is hard. 
you're impacting your debt metrics if you're financing development with no income coming in. Credit rating agencies kind of look at debt to EBITDA. You know, it's kind of an important metric that's impacted by doing development in the short term. But, you know, we bought 180 acres in Houston at just over 30 million US, so 40 million Canadian. What would 180 acres be, you know, in Mississauga or Brampton today? It'd probably be 600 million to 650 million. We wouldn't be able to acquire at scale in certain markets in, in the GTA. So you have to be strategic and, and creative. And I think looking at the U.S., it gives us those opportunities. And listen, I think we had between two buildings in the U.S. in the second quarter, I think we booked either 80 or 90 million Canadian in profit on those. So that had a significant impact on NAV, over a dollar, a dollar 25 of NAV. And that's on our minds, you know, as as real estate companies and as issuers, it's all about adding value for unit holders. And a lot of our U.S. markets give us, gives us that opportunity. Is it safe to say then that you're kind of in growth mode in all three of the markets that you're currently in? If you had the opportunity to, act, to acquire, you would, you would be looking at that? Well, right now, we're really focused on just getting our developments done and preserving our uh, liquidity and capital. Not that we have any concerns. We have one of the strongest balance sheets in the country. Like, I think we finished Q2 at 28% leverage. But we want to maintain that liquidity and focus on our development. So right now, our acquisition pipeline is minimal, minimal. And so that's what's on our mind. And also just looking where cap rates and discount rates. That's where I was going is like how you saw that math make sense. I think one thing people need to understand in terms of cap rate movements and the impact on our NAV or the impact on our value is, Yes, cap rates have certainly moved. It's hard to tell how much right now because there isn't a lot of data. It's not really clear. We're using REIT reports to figure out where cap rates yeah. are, well, not transactions. I know. Now you're saying you don't know. This is terrible. <laughs> well, and we, we certainly adjusted our cap rates, but how much you do exactly is a little bit subjective. But remember that also NOI is up you know, significantly year over year and quarter over quarter, and that's having a positive impact on value. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? Does rising rents pave over all the other, you know, difficulties in the market? Well, particularly on the development side, if that's what your pipeline is looking like, you know, you've, you've got increasing costs, but are you able to kind of, yeah. your pro forma from three years ago when you started this process actually makes sense today just because rents have, all up. Absolutely. Have, have worked They're out for you? Up. And it was interesting because we, I think when we first underwrote these opportunities, I think we felt development yields would be in the low sixes. That came down to five and a half yields because of rising costs. If you remember that period of time in 2021 when, China was buying all of the steel, all of the lumber. Those copper was copper through the roof. Through yeah. the roof. That has really come down. So we actually have, from a construction cost perspective, seen those pressures come down. But rents are up 20%. So we went from you know low six projected yields to mid fives. Now we're back at low to mid sixes because the rents have, have more than outpaced increases in inflation. On, uh, on LinkedIn, it seems like four or five months ago, there's a lot of discussion around doing shorter initial terms mm-hmm. after after you know new build, the ability to capture rents yeah. going up. Is that a strategy that you're looking at? It's a strategy we'd certainly consider. Yeah, the short answer is yes. But but today's logistics tenant, for the most part, wants a longer lease term because they're investing a lot more behind the doors than they used to 15 years ago. So I, like, I always tell the story that we have Amazon and a couple of facilities. The value of the equipment behind the doors is more than the value of the building itself. And that's not just Amazon. That's a number of our tenants. 
So when they approach us, they're putting that level of investment behind the doors. They want 10 years. Yeah. So they're not coming to us saying, can we do three? And we'd be happy to. And actually, we're in discussions with a tenant in the US on a three and a half year deal. More than happy to do that. But it's really the tenants that are driving the term because they need it to justify the expenditure that they're making behind the doors. And you want a tenant like Amazon on the rent roll. Well, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Despite what, you know, some of the headlines that, that they've made around, you know, shrinking their footprint, they haven't done, we haven't seen evidence of that at all. I think they're slowing down their new development program, which is understandable. But listen, what they were doing in 2021 was, we always felt it was unsustainable. You know, I think they took on so much space in a, in a short period of time. But our estimates and the data that we've seen show that they probably are looking to, you know, add another 100 million square feet in the U.S. alone over the next couple of years. So they'll still be active, but not nearly as active as they were. That makes sense. Kevin, we're running out of time and you've got to run to the, the closing panel. So I want to oh, just have. last topic of just decarbonization, energy efficiency, and, you know, particularly on your development side, because that's where you have the most control over yeah. it. What kind of things are you looking at or deploying in your development? Well, so as part of our ESG program, we made a declaration a couple of years ago. We, we set up a green bond framework because we have two green bonds totaling about a billion dollars. We set up a framework that laid out how we are going to allocate the funds for those green bonds towards sustainable projects. The bulk of those projects are new developments that have to meet green building criteria. And so... You know, in Germany, that means DGNB. In the Netherlands, it's BREAM, and that's also used in the UK. In the US, it can be Green Globes or it could be LEED, and the same thing in Canada. So that's what a lot of acronyms. On. Oh, I know. I know. Well, it's a, <laughs> listen, you know, it's a business. Yeah. It's an industry. Yeah. I just it's read an, an article saying that there, there's, a, there's a global lobby trying to get the IFRS to be the ones that just do it all, and then that'll make it oh, that, consistent that, across that, the country. That sounds like a great idea. That's, that sounds, <laughs> but you know, a billion dollars we've raised since 20, I think 2020, 2021. And I would say by the end of this year, we'll have allocated about a billion dollars. So those bonds will be fully covered, fully allocated in certified green buildings, second party certified green buildings. So we've been very active in that side. And, you know, that's, that's what we're focused on. If you're focused on modern logistics and e-commerce, your buildings will be newer. They will be energy efficient. That's the bulk of our portfolio. Are the tenants expecting that? Yes, they expect it. I, I think in terms of certification, maybe not so much. I don't think so. But energy efficiency, 100%. And your shareholders, they're expecting it. Shareholders expect it and bondholders expect it. It's something that, and more and more investor and stakeholders are paying attention. Like, how often does it come up on your quarterly calls? Well, it depends on the state of the market. <laughs> <laughs> but it's certainly something that's, that's asked. And dealing with bond investors too, they they want to know. They they follow it pretty closely. So it becomes it's table stakes. It's exactly. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Kevin. I apologize. You've got to run. It's your fault. Do on the main stage. <laughs> the, big, the big show's coming up. I got a bunch more to cover. We'll we'll have you back on another time. Thank you, Kevin, very much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you again. All right. Take care. Don't forget, stay tuned. Of course, Aaron and I will do our after show to share our thoughts on the episode. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we talk about the conversation we just had with Kevin Gorey. 
we didn't get him for as long as I would have liked. Unfortunately, he had to run to the panel that's, yeah, that's I, occurring right I get now. Get why he doesn't want to be late for that. <laughs> Very understandable. <laughs> yeah, He's got no, a no. couple hundred people, room full of his peers waiting on him. Totally but, get uh, it. Yeah. Interesting story. I didn't realize he came from Pure. It, it reminded me. I, I hadn't. I hadn't put it together. But we had Charlie Deeks on. During COVID, so it would have been sometime in 2020, and he was still at Pure. But I, I guess post Blackstone, post Blackstone, and they were yeah. still going. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm not on top of it, but I think Pure's still around, still going strong. I don't think well, under the brand name, but it's yeah, yeah, Blackstone. It's Blackstone, yeah. And, and I mean, clearly Kevin made her a good choice. The transition he had done. I mean, the numbers is 18, 18 million they of square feet they had when he started, and now they're up to up to 50, 57. I had a really dense moment for a second there because he mentioned that they'd taken 97% Magna leasing down to 20. My thought was like, well, what's Magna doing without that space? No, it was through growth that they reduced that percentage. <laughs> I, I, only for a minute, but it, that did go through my head. I was like, oh, we've Adam, been, get it We've together. been doing this all day, guys. Yeah, so everybody did a long one, but yeah, it, it clicked. Just I wish it clicked a little faster in terms of that. Well, but, and I think they did dispose of some, right? Like, yes, uh, yeah. We no, financed an app. We did, One yeah. of your clients acquired some of those those sites, right? Yeah, about so, a half million square feet of uh, Magna product. Yeah. So, I mean, it's um, clearly a very, very intelligent individual with a very specific focus on how he wants to grow the industrial portfolio. I also like that he's got the the Europe, US, and Canadian exposure. We didn't get into it. We only talked briefly about the decarbonization. He did mention the plethora of acronyms of different yeah. different groups across the globe that are focused on you know just sponsors for your energy, your quality of your energy efficiency in your buildings. But Europe, as we always keep talking about, is ahead. I would have I would have liked to have asked just what the differences yeah, are, how, how important it is, and the reporting, yeah. and and what that looks like, particularly as a public entity. It's the public entities that really are forced through the regulatory bodies to have to show what they're doing and what their carbon footprint is and what their offset strategies are. And yeah, they must be dealing with that full bore over there, which you would probably be well equipped so. to deal with it here when it you know does end up here. Well, that's why I said you know, that, that there's some, some, a strategy or push to kind of get the IFRS to do it because that's a global sort of accounting mechanism. And he kind of laughed, I think, in yeah. a negative way. He wasn't like, that's a good idea. Was like, that's there was a, a terrible layer of sarcasm yeah. spread over that. <laughs> so, I fortunately have no exposure to the IFRS other than knowing that what it is. So maybe I don't appreciate just some component of you know, the challenges of dealing with it. Maybe he does. He yeah, does, clearly. Yeah. yeah, clearly there's something going on. So. Yeah. One thing, I, I, we didn't really get into it too much with them, but I guess maybe having Peary go back private was maybe not the outcome he'd wanted for his baby. You know, the growing, he said, you know, from, was it 250 million up to up to, to 4 billion? But, you know, if you look at it from a Blackstone perspective, acquiring that much industrial in 2018, not a bad move given what uh, industrial has done since then. Well, and I like the pragmatism. Like he said, he didn't want to sell it, but we had to because yeah. that was the right thing I mean, to do. 35% left. Yeah, that, is, it just, uh, it was, a, yeah. it was you, you could not say no. Yeah, you'd have a lot of shareholders just uh, yeah. <laughs> pleading the other case. I think that's it for us. This is actually a wrap for the entire day at uh, at Real Reed. We've had a pretty good time here, but at this point, I think I think we're uh, we're done talking for a while. All right, everybody, we'll uh, see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.